So we're going to talk this morning about work, and specifically, we're going to talk about this paradox of Christian living, which uh, at le- says, like my t-shirt does this morning, that you and I can do our best work through welfare. Often two ideas, two concepts, you don't think of going together, work and welfare, but that's our destination this morning, and as our destination, we're still sort of docked at the port, so let's just enjoy the journey together, all right? And I'll tell you where we're headed. First, we're going to look at some Bible basics about work. Then we're going to explore a passage in the Bible that presents both the dilemma of work, but also a kind of uh, a treasure map that I think will help us. And along the way, I'm going to give us two keys, two main keys that will aid us I think God can use to aid us in our work. All right? So first we're going to cover some Bible basics about work. Work is good because God works. God works. Genesis 2, 1 and 3, here's what we hear. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day... God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day, made it holy, because on it, God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. God completes his work, and he fills full both his heavens and his earth. And the fact that God calls his act of creating work is no small point. This went squarely against the later Greek and Roman thought that said working with dirt, working with your hands, getting them dirty, that is the most demeaning kind of labor. But here we find God doing just that, getting his hands dirty, creating out of this dirt, in fact, creating us out of it. Also went against the current day ancient Near Eastern thought in which Moses was writing this. For instance, the uh, Babylonian creation story asserts that God created humans specifically because and for doing the work that the gods didn't want to do. And some of you were thinking like, hey, that's why my boss hired me. (laughs) You know, to do the work that he does not want to do or she does not want to do. God didn't stop working. He doesn't make this to get rid of work. He keeps working. He didn't wind up the universe, sort of let it go and step back, like the deists claim. Rather, God finds rest in the completion of His work. And so we hear Him say of it, it is finished. And, man, it is good. So that's the first thing we learn here, a Bible basic about work. The second thing we learn is that man is created to imitate God through his or her work and finding fulfillment in it. We see this here in Genesis. In fact, we see three kinds of work that God releases man to do. Uh, first, chapter 2, verse 15, I'll put this up on the screen. The Lord took man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work and to keep it. 
The word here for work, abad, indicates this, this tending to, this fostering of growth. To keep it, to keep it up. Interceding between God's creation and the creation itself. God has created this. Man is to kind of keep it up. So we see this kind of direct caring for that kind of work. And we see in chapter 1, verse 26, God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. There's that idea again, we're called to imitate God. Let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the heavens, over the livestock of the earth, every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. All right, so rule over the creepers. All right, the creeping things, all the things that were made. This rule, it's a kingly word. It's a regal word, rule. Right, but we're supposed to rule with care. That's the connotation of this word, to direct responsibly, lovingly. So we see ruling. Finally, we see naming. Look with me in uh, chapter 2, verses 19 through 20. Also up on the screen. So out of the ground, the Lord God formed every beast of the field, every bird of the heavens, and he brought them to man to see what he would call them. Whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. So he names. He speaks identity over each animal, which took a lot of thought, creativity, and work, right? Because we're told it's every beast of the field. He had to think, what is this? I mean, you can imagine. Just every beast. Like, what did he... The armadillo probably took at least 15 minutes. <laughs> right? I think, what is this thing? I don't even know. It's like salt on the inside, hard on the outside. I don't know what they call this. So man made in God's image to work as he did. As God did. And then to find rest, fulfillment, and satisfaction in work like God does. And we see three types of work. Direct care, intercession, ruling, and speaking. Another fact we learn here, a fun Bible fact about work, is that work is bigger than your job, your career, or earning a wage. It's actually fascinating how we got to the point where we started to think work is just earning a wage. It's, but we don't have time to get into that history this morning. But we see this here in Genesis 1 and 2. It's very broad, this idea of work. And we see this also in the New Testament. Activities described as toil in the New Testament, labor and work are far broader than just your job, what you clock in and out of. So for instance, parenting, right? friendships, marriage is work. Ben Affleck was right about that. Leisure, leisure time. I mean, just, I was realizing yesterday, just getting to the beach is work. Right, you want to get to the beach, it is work. You put the sunscreen on, what SPF should I use? I don't know anymore. I've got to get the chairs. Should I bring snorkel gear? Should I not? What kind of beach trip is this going to be? Then if you have children, it's like ridiculous. You've got the, you know, you're spraying like, with two hands at a time and these kids and stuff. It's work. Service. As a member of God's church, it's work. You come here. You look around, our poor nursery people looking for all this stuff this morning that went missing. I mean, it's work. Much broader than just your job or your career. Another fun fact, a little less fun, i got to admit, is that work is partially cursed. 
Genesis 3, 17 through 19, says this. And to Adam he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife, I'll explain more about that later, <laughs> don't come away with this thinking I shouldn't listen to my wife. That's, that's the wrong that's the wrong point you want to learn. Because you've listened to the voice of your wife, you've eaten of the tree of which I commanded you. You shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. You shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken. You were taken. Mankind rebels against God. He has all of life. Eat to the tree of life. So his punishment then is death. And a specific fruit of which, specific fruit of death is you will find frustration in your work. It's like a little taste of death in our life every day. It might be with the work itself. The amount of work you have, um, I'd be with technology. Need I say more with that, right? It might be with the people with whom you work, co-workers, employees, your boss. It could be with the terrible twos, your kids. You work with them, your spouse, your roommates, even someone in this church. But mostly, our work is self and The frustration we find is self-inflicted. Procrastination, cutting corners, controlling, lacking patience or faith, you got a figure wrong, a memo you ignore, a misplaced word at a meeting, a mountain response from another's molehill mistake, usually self-inflicted frustration. This won't change no matter your job. God makes sure to tell us this in verse 17. It will be all the days of your life. So this creates for us a work dilemma. We've established work is good. We're created to do it and fill it full or fulfill, really. And yet it's cursed. And so fulfillment will always be frustrated at some level. You won't quite, you're like, man, I just didn't quite, didn't quite get the sweet spot enough times. Uh, last Saturday, I uh, watched a good bit of television. With my family, um, golf is the one sport Katie enjoys, and so we watch it, um, and I try to show it as much as possible. And I left the room for a little while. We left the TV on for our children to absorb the television commercials that came in between this golf tournament. And I was, I'm slightly embarrassed, but a little proud, that my children can now repeat such slogans as, Lowe's, never stop improving. And it's like, my child reminded me this week, Geico, 15 minutes can save you 15% or more on your car insurance. (laughs) They're laughing down there because they have repeated this to me multiple times since they've been home. So I come back into the room and Mason says, Dad, I did see this strange commercial. So I re-round the DVR we had and I want to show you the commercial that he saw. All right, so here it is. We're going to play it for you now. Evening. Evening. You are in luck this evening. We are? Everyone is here tonight. Leonardo, the Wright brothers, Ben Franklin, 
Edison. Who are the others? You won't know most of them. Do you know who came up with the toaster oven? Air conditioning? The three-pronged outlet? See, innovation isn't something you do to get famous. It's a calling, a passion. Every idea improves every other idea. What's possible leads to what's practical. What's practical leads to what's possible. Innovation leads to innovation. Five years out. Welcome to the club. Arrow Electronics. All right, so we just did an advertisement for this company. We'll go out on the radio, podcasts, whatever, but they're not sponsoring us, just so you know. We're, not, we're a nonprofit. But watch this, and one of our boys, we were talking about who we couldn't remember, said, I wonder if I'll ever get invited to that kind of dinner. There's a response. And I smiled, kind of, and I thought, man, so this is how it begins. Right, because watching that commercial, you see Galileo and Newton and all these things, you feel the weight of performing through your work. Is that what i got to live up to? Like the light bulb? Really? Will, will I measure up and fulfill my potential? Will my work make a lasting impact? Will it matter? And once I'm in it, will I have the passion to last in it? All fair questions. Every person wants work that lasts and to last in their work. Why is this? Because we all wish to fulfill our God-imaged potential, talents, and work to justify all that we do. To justify who we are. Everyone wishes to justify their work to someone. What they do to someone Everyone has an audience. Oftentimes it's a spouse. You know you've had to come home, and and spouses often compete to justify their work. Here's what I did. Here's what I did. Here's what I did. Oh, yeah, here's what I did. Here's what I. You know this feeling. You've been through this before if you're married. You want to justify to a friend, a boss. You want to justify your work. Often it's parents, and especially fathers. To feel proud, and it might just be your God, your Creator. In the legendary movie, Chariots of Fire, based on the true story of two Olympic runners in the 1924 Olympics. Well, one of the runners, Harold Abrams, works incredibly hard, incredibly hard training to win these gold medals. Now, the starting line, you actually hear him breathe the words, I have ten lonely seconds to justify my existence. You just feel the weight as he says that. And I I would argue that it's this repeated attempt to justify ourselves through our work that makes lasting at work so darn difficult and near impossible. I've got to justify myself. I've got to justify myself. So when I asked 35 of you this week, 35 folks here are in our church, where is your greatest struggle doing work that lasts or lasting at your work? Doing work that lasts, something that endures, has some lasting impact, or lasting at your work. You see yourselves lasting at it. Fifteen of you said doing work that lasts, whereas 17 of you said lasting at your work. Only three people, three people said that basically neither is a struggle. Three out of 35. It's a low percentage indicating nothing else. I didn't know what, to, what would come of this survey that 
this dilemma strikes a chord with us. It is a, a dilemma. It is a problem. It's something we think about. I had a lot of strong responses. So I appreciated the honesty. Admittedly, our, though, our need to justify ourselves through doing work that lasts, which requires us and lasts at our work, is a first world problem. Right? Feeling like we need to do work that lasts, which requires that we last at our work, is a first world problem. May, many, and maybe even a number of you, literally can't afford to think about such a dilemma. You're just grateful for a job that puts food on the table. And to some extent, all of us should get to that point where we're just grateful for the gift of a job that helps us put food on the table. But before dismissing this dilemma of work that lasts and lasting in our work as just being spoiled, the Bible does address it. it. It relates to first world problems. So turn with me, if you would, to Ecclesiastes chapter 5. Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verses 9 through 15. You're going to need a Bible this morning. If you don't have one, reach in your aisles to one or ask one, someone to get one for you. There are also some at the end of these aisles. You're going to need a Bible this morning. Ecclesiastes 5, 9 through 15. Ecclesiastes was written during the reign of King Solomon in Israel's golden age. In fact, it may have been written by the most wealthy man alive at that time, Solomon or at least written by a, a wise, affluent teacher-preacher in his court, right? part of his cabinet, if you will. Those living in these kind of golden ages, which I would argue we are still in, even though it feels like we are not, if you live here in Cayman, those living in wealthy, educated societies can't afford to ask these kind of existential questions about the lasting value of what they produced and how long they can last at it. And we see these two questions, these two, uh, these dile- this dilemma three millennia ago, a long time ago, back when this was written. Which is cool because all of the Bible still relates to life. So see, first we're going to see the problem of work that lasts. Look with me, Ecclesiastes 5, starting in verse 9. We're going to read through verse 11. What gain has the worker for his toil or from his toil? I have seen the business or busyness that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. He has made everything beautiful in its time. He has made everything beautiful in its time. The teacher, the writer here, recognizes each aspect of work will be deemed beautiful, and that's the good news. So what you do, what you produce, the good news is it will be deemed beautiful, But the problem is when in its time. He goes on to elaborate in the rest of verse 11 saying, also he has put eternity into the man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from beginning to end. You may have heard this verse quoted before as proof that each person recognizes that there's a life beyond this one. And that's a good thing. It's a great thing. But the context here is actually more negative. It's a sense of eternity put into a worker so that he or she never knows when their work will prove itself beautiful, valuable, worthwhile. They'll just never know. 
And we see this in the lives of people all the time, right? Lives of people like Leonardo da Vinci, who uh, deeply struggled his entire life with this feeling like he never completed anything. Nothing of value during his lifetime. He never felt that. And yet some point along the line of history, someone and some group of people began to deem him one of the greatest artists and innovators of all time. And we sense that looking at his work, yet he felt his whole life, I never did anything of real value. I never completed anything of value. We also see here the problem of lasting at our work. In verses 12 through 13, I perceived that there's nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also, that everyone should just eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. With the uncertainty of your work lasting with value, you hear the preacher at this point concede. You might as well just enjoy the perks. Enjoy the perks of your work while you do live. Right? The summer holidays, in between the coffee breaks and the catered lunches, the nice vacations, the 50-inch plasma screen TV maybe, the occasional good steak. Oh man, that is nice, right? Might as well just enjoy those perks. It's about as good as you can do. The preacher himself reminds us doing work, though, is for as long as they live. As long as they live. So as great as the perks are, they can't fuel you to last for as long as you live. It just doesn't fulfill you. The preacher recognizes he can't completely solve the dilemma The perks are the best that he and that Judaism have to offer. But he does hint towards a solution, which is why I believe he also gives us a treasure map that helps us towards work that lasts and the last at our work. Read with me in verses 14 through 15. I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it nor anything taken away from it. God has done it so that people fear before him. That which is already has been. That which is to be already has been. And God seeks what has been driven away. Start with verse 15. This last phrase is pretty weird, isn't it? It is the sense that God summons each event back to its turn. God summons each event back in its turn. In fact, the New Living Translation translates it that way. God wants certain events or works to repeat themselves. Now, what does that mean? What does God want to repeat through you and I? There's another time when God looks back at his work and says, it is good and it is finished. It is finished. It's at the end of Jesus' life, dying on a cross, and these are his last words, it is finished. And these three words, it is finished, are the whole solution to the work dilemma. It is finished so that you can repeat the work, a work of value. It is finished so that you can be finished justifying your work. I'll explain what I mean. Jesus had an allotted amount of good work to fulfill, and he finished it. He had a cup to fill of work, and he finished it. What was Jesus' work? 
to live out every aspect of being the Christ. The Christ. And we're only going to take a quick glance at the Christ this morning. If you want to find out more about the Christ and this idea that Jesus is the Christ, you can go back, listen to a May 26th sermon in 1 John. The Christ means the anointed one. In the Old Testament, there were three types of leaders set apart by anointing oil to lead through three different types of work. Being a prophet, being a priest, and being a king. And these three were anointed and set apart to work in their respective spheres. Prophets led by speaking on God's behalf to call people back to faithfulness to the agreement He had with them, the covenant. Priests led by standing between man and God. When man rebelled, they came to a priest, made sacrifices on their behalf, and made them right with God again. He stood in between. He interceded directly for people. Kings led by ruling and organizing people in a godly fashion so they could worship God with all their lives. It should sound familiar. Intercession, ruling, and speaking. Something we were created to do since the beginning of time. But no one fulfilled or finished their work like God did. No one fulfilled or finished their work like God said He finished His work back in Genesis 2. No one was able to do it because of that frustration until Jesus Christ. During Jesus' inaugural address, people were dumbfounded at the authority and graciousness of what He spoke. Jesus shows His rulership over people and all creation. Anytime He shows rulership over creation in the New Testament, where He produces something, He's showing His rulership. For all you accountants out there, Jesus produced money. He didn't print it. <laughs> all right? There was no time He did that. He was not a, a launderer or anything of that nature. But He produced money in the mouth of a fish. Right, to pay a tax. It's a wonderful thing. Showing complete rulership over all of creation and even over financial systems. Jesus got between people as an intercessor, between law, the law of God, and adulterers. Between people being faithful to God and being, trying to be obedient to a worldly government. How can you do that? Jesus interceded and showed the way. Jesus fulfills the godly work of interceding, of ruling, and speaking perfectly. And then he says, it is finished. My work is finished. Now think about this with your own life. Think about who you are and what you do, your work. All of us basically major in one of these three kinds of work. Priests getting in between people, ruling people in a, in a respectful and a loving way, or speaking into people's lives. Priests, if you do social work, charity, or you, you're in, in insurance, you get in between the laws and people and help them. In medicine, you get in between people and their sickness and help them. Hospitality, getting in between people and their vacations, I don't know, their food, help them get access to it. Retail, people and the things they need to buy to live. And of course, parents. You get in between your kids <laughs> and all kinds of things, right? Ruling in our lives. 
if you produce or organize money, you fulfill this idea of kingliness. Judges are the justice system. You're ruling to care for people, to direct people. If you're a manager, directing people responsibly, organizing. If you fix things, you bring order out of chaos. People do that with my plumbing. It's nuts in there. Last weekend, I broke a pipe outside. It was insane. My poor son Mason tried to stop it up with a cork. It was so good of him to try. But, uh, but someone brought order out of chaos. Thank goodness. Artists, you rule over clay. Or you bring order out of hair. Some of you here this morning. Again, parents, you rule. You bring order out of chaos all the time. Finally, prophets, teachers who speak and encourage with truth who train with truth, politicians who often speak truth, um, salespeople who often speak truth, right, and, and encourage us through their words, uh, pastors hopefully speak truth, <laughs> and finally, parents. Notice parents are in all three, which is why I surveyed three stay-at-home moms this week in my survey, because that is incredible work full-time. One of the keys then this morning to do work that lasts, work of value, first key, Repeat the finished work of Christ specific to your work and gifting. Specific to who you are and in your work. You can give a taste of the work of Christ, the finished work of Christ, which should encourage us. should be encouraged, interceding, ruling, speaking for God's glory. The life of Christ, as Paul says later, is being revealed through you. And our mortal bodies is being revealed. And I'm not necessarily talking in your job about evangelism or praying for others at your workplace or inviting them to church. I'm saying your actual work, the work itself done for the glory of God, is disseminating a hint of the work of Jesus for others to see and to smell and to taste and to hear. That does something to people. I can't think of anything more valuable and you think, man, I don't know if this work really matters. You're disseminating an aspect of the work of Christ, a taste of it in your work. It doesn't solve the problem with the, the lasting at my work piece. So let's head there. Back to our treasure map in Ecclesiastes 3. This time in verse 14, he says, I perceive that whatever God does, whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken from it. God has done it so that people fear before Him. May fear before Him. Work eternal, eternal, sorry, and immovable that we can't add to and that no one can take away from, whose ultimate end is fearing, worshiping, relying on God. Jesus put the finishing touches on His work by getting in between us and the just, just punishment of God on the cross. He was raised from the dead to show His rulership. And He spoke, Father, forgive them to communicate the mystery of salvation that He was working out. Intercession, rulership as He rose from the dead, speaking, Father, forgive them to tell us of this mystery of salvation. To be clear about the work He was doing. Finished. Jesus justifies us by giving us His finished work. 
it is finished means we can be finished justifying who we are by the work we do. That brings us to the second key. Allow Jesus to justify you through his finished work. And that's the whole concept of welfare, isn't it? Living off the work of someone else. Mooching off the work of someone else. Getting sustained, being sustained by the work of someone else. Oh, that's so despicable, some of us think. That's exactly what we do with Jesus Christ. That's how we're released and start on the journey of freedom of rest, of satisfaction in your work, and lasting in your work. When we start to say, Jesus, I trust what you have done above what I can do. I no longer need to justify and prove myself. You have finished a better work for me. I want to close with with three pictures of how allowing, drinking in Jesus' finished work and justification for you leads to work that lasts and lasting your work. Three pictures to wrap your head around and help you with your life. I'm going to give you a really old example, a less old example, (laughs) but still old. And finally, a around-this-century example uh, that will help. First one, Peter, the Apostle Peter. He was a normal guy getting to know Jesus. He was the first to believe and to speak that Jesus was the Christ. And so seeing Jesus Christ walk on water... Jesus put, or Peter puts his confidence in Jesus' work, not his own. And so he feels free to step out of a boat and onto water. Pretty amazing. Peter experiences in Jesus the freedom to, what I call the freedom to fail. Which means the pressure's off with what he does. By faith, the pressure is off. The best that can happen is he gets to walk on water towards Jesus that's pretty awesome and it happens but the worst that can happen is that Jesus rescues him takes his hand out and rescues him that's the worst that can happen and it does that's not such a bad worst is it it's a picture of the justified life we are secure in Jesus work for us and so the pressure's off friends pressure's off. We can step out and risk failure. Second example from the epic film, Chariots of Fire, back to that. The other key character, the key Olympian, is a guy named Eric Liddell. Liddell loves Jesus Christ and he lives out of the justification of Jesus in his life. His sister, before he goes off to Paris to run in the Olympics, Ask him essentially why or for whom is he always training and working so hard? And he can only respond by saying, when I run, when I run, I feel God's pleasure. That's all. In other words, he doesn't run or work to be justified by applause from a big stadium or a medal handed out by a committee just to love God back, to honor Him back out of what He's done for Him. The pressure's off. There's a freedom to do this now wholly for God, to step out and take the risk. And guess what? He does better work. He does better work. He wins the 400 meters, a distance he never even run before. 
Think about that risk. I'm going to step out and run a distance I've never even run before in my life at the Olympics. Why not? What's the worst that can happen? So he does better work. One last example. We see the justification through the finished work of Christ leading to better and lasting work through a man uh, named John Smoltz. Now John Smoltz, he's a modern example. He's a longtime baseball pitcher for the Major League Baseball team, the Atlanta Braves. He retired in 2009. During his career, he actually changed jobs. He went from a starting pitcher to a relief pitcher, which is a very hard transition. A relief pitcher or closer means that his job was to come in at the end of a game with his team winning by just a little bit. Just a little bit. It's the only time he shows up in the game where his team's winning by just the narrowest of margins and to make sure the other team doesn't score. That's his job. For years, a closer has been considered one of the, one of the top five most stressful jobs in the United States. I know that sounds silly. But up there, though, with air traffic controller and a football, NFL football place kicker. All right, they come, jobs where you get no acknowledgement unless something goes wrong. But John was good at it, like historically good at it. He's the only player to amass both 200 wins and 150 saves, and he lasted 20 years, over 20 years in his job, which is amazing for an athlete. Interview I read a few years back, he was asked why he was so good at it. His answer, I think, sums up the whole sermon this morning. I'll close with this. The two things. One, I believe in God's word. And two, God's word says that because I put my faith in Jesus, my hope is secure. My worth is secure. So I live by a verse in the Bible. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord and not for men. It says, because my eternal destiny is secure, I am free to do everything for God and not other people. So when I throw, there's really no pressure. What's the worst that can happen? Let's pray. Father, work is hard and it is frustrating. I am so grateful. I've seen so many people here though, Father, through their work. I've got to go into their workplaces, see them work. Those who I have, maybe they can invite me out for a bring your pastor to work day. But until then, Lord, I know so many of these folks work. And by working, interceding for people, speaking to people, helping manage and rule in a loving way, organize people, produce for people, they're giving and spreading a taste of the work of Christ, a taste of the finished work of Jesus Christ around their workplace, and to this world, and to this community, and that is valuable, Lord. But also, Father, in our work, remind us that the pressure is off. Remind, help us take shelter in the finished work of Jesus that he did to justify us. To help us be finished from that trying to justify ourselves from others and to others, Lord, about our work. And rest secure that what he did is enough. Use that, Lord. Help us drink that in. Help us look evermore to the finished work of Christ that we might be free to radically step out and do better work for your glory and others' good. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.